Welcome to Makers Chat, a podcast community for creatives. I'm your host, Danielle Kaminsky, artist, maker, and educator from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Join me as we share our stories and explore the topics that are most important to creative entrepreneurs and makers. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Makers Chat podcast. I'm super excited to be here with our second episode, and we are going to be talking to Chris Neely with Wet Paint Syndrome or Guardians by Chris Neely, depending on how you know him. So I know him as Chris because he is also a vendor at Vintage Warehouse of Spartanburg, the store I own here locally. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely, Danielle. I'm I'm really excited that you're doing this podcast, and I think it's it's a great way for you to connect with other makers and also people who are just interested in how uh, how people make stuff. It's a it's a it's a good a good but people people love to know sort of the inner workings, what's behind the scene, what's going on in your mind when you're making art. And so this is fun. I appreciate you considering me to be a guest. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really I'm I'm loving it so far. I'm loving the conversations I'm getting to have with people. I'm a very, I'm a people person. I like to talk and I like to hear people's stories. So like this was right up my alley, but I really, I love listening to podcasts. And when I was out looking, you know, I I, I found all kinds of great podcasts and plenty that were related to makers and artists, but like, this is what I wanted. I wanted the one where you're just hearing about like the process, the making and a little bit of business and a little bit of encouragement. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make what I'm looking for. And then it's going to be there out there. <laughs> that's, what we have, that's what we have to do as makers, right? That's right. We make what we need. <laughs> so tell us, uh, tell us about you. Tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Chris Neely. And uh, if, if you are not seeing it there on the screen, I joke that my mother misspelled it twice. It's K-R-I-S-P-O-F-E-R. Um, Christopher Neely and uh, Danielle, I am a studio art professor usually at Spartanburg Methodist College. Right now, I'm the interim provost. Um, during this time, we're in a in a transition with our academic administration. I was asked to take on that role um, in December uh, and, and really started in January. So we're kind of right at that uh, just past spring break and, and fully in the throes of being the interim provost, and I'm glad to do that to help the college. Um, I was honored that they asked me to, to take on that role. And um, but, but usually my day job is that I'm the studio art professor there at SMC. I also own Wet Paint Syndrome LLC, which is uh, an art studio, and I paint the the work that I'm best known for are my guardian angels, um, and, and I do sell those at Vintage Warehouse. So those are sort of the key places. One of the ways I'm also a leader in our community is that I, I like to work with the scouting program and uh, and and have some involvement there with helping our youth. And sometimes that looks like me teaching art merit badge or sculpture merit badge. And other times it's just, you know, leading a Zoom call in the middle of a pandemic and talking about, you know, civics with kids. So um, just different ways to connect and to to be a part of the community. And all those things somehow sort of make sense when I've blend them together. But if you took those pieces, you might not say, hey, this is the linear path to get to being a leader. I'm just kind of doing things as I go that seem interesting, the ways I feel like I can help. So, yeah, that's great. Um, so you you went to school for art, right? Well, it's funny. I 
I actually, when I was in high school, I really was focused on studio art. That was the thing I wanted to do. My, um, my mom and dad had a, uh, uh, you know, kitchen chopping block conversation with me as a senior in high school and said, look, I know you've applied to these art schools, but you need to go to a small private liberal arts college. Um, I had a couple of different opportunities. Uh, one opportunity was a school that had a studio art uh, program that I was really excited about. Another opportunity was a school that had one studio art course that was taught in the basement of a residence hall. And they offered me a much better scholarship. And I really struggled with that decision. I felt very conflicted, but I chose to go to Wofford College and to, to be there at a time when they really didn't have a strong studio art program. Um, that was hard for me. I thought about transferring uh, when I was a first year student because I missed that component of my, of my art. I, I had thought that that would be more a part of my college experience. Um, but Wofford ended up to be a really great place. And the kinds of things that I learned in my degree there uh, was a religion degree. Um, I, I still had plenty of opportunity for creativity and opportunities to still incorporate photography and visual art. I, I became a much better writer and, uh, and a much more, um, you know, a stronger reader and a, and a person who was more comfortable with leadership and discussion. And, uh, and my mom still thinks that was, you know, the, the best move was for me to, to, to focus on some of those things that I needed to grow in and then uh, and get that liberal arts degree and then go on to do, do the studio art piece. So I have a, an MFA from Goddard College in Vermont, um, and uh, that is focused on interdisciplinary arts, um, which, which incorporated um, my studio art practices, photography, painting, drawing, um, a little bit of sculpture installation, but also um, some of that creative writing piece. So uh, that's my educational background that lets me be able to be a college professor. And, uh, and it was really interesting to try to put together a graduate level portfolio to be accepted to a program when I really didn't have the chops of the foundation studio art courses. Um, it inspired me to try to help build those programs at Wofford when I was working there and, and teaching there. And I was able to help do that. And then I was presented with a, a challenge, the opportunity to go to Spartanburg Methodist College and uh, help to sort of reestablish um, a longstanding studio art program there that um, local uh, textile artist uh, Ann Wins had started um, many years before. And um, she had retired and there had been, you know, uh, there'd been sort of a transition period and the opportunity was there to really help that program grow and rebound and uh, was able to come in and help to do that. And that's just been a tremendous amount of fun. I love, I love teaching at SMC. Um, it's a fantastic place. If you don't know it, great mission. Um, and the great thing for me, uh, as much as I love teaching at Wofford, you know, I loved every minute there as well. I'm just, I love, I love whatever I'm doing, I guess, but as long, as long as it relates to, community and art and, you know, yeah. being involved with people. But, uh, but the thing that I love about being at SMC is their mission. And, and it is really a, a college that helps uh, kids from this area really, really, really have a chance at college. And I just love a kid uh, coming in who's been in a good high school program and feels like me, like, am I going to have to give this up in college to do something real with my life? 
and I can help them sort of keep the studio art as a part of that. I feel like that's kind of where I was. Um, I, anyway, so so I have a real passion about that and want to continue helping to build that studio program. Right now, I have the chance to help the college as a whole in the role of interim provost, and um, absolutely delighted to get to do that as well. So. Um, yeah. I, I joke with my colleagues, it's in my best interest to make sure that whatever uh, policies or changes or things I might do in my interim time, that they're going to benefit me when, I, when I'm back in the classroom. So they're not worried about, uh, you know, having the art professor up there and, uh, and we're able to, to, to build and improve some things and, uh, and just continue growing that college and, and the footprint um, that lets us have a big impact on our community. And and our goal is to help launch artists into careers or into classrooms at other places when they transfer. And, um, and it's just a lot of fun to work with students on helping them take what they naturally have and, and translate that into, uh, you know, some academic credentials that let them be able to really reach for those dreams. So I am, I am in the, people say, is making art the thing you love the most? And it is a thing I love a lot, but helping to make artists is even more fun. And so <laughs> that's that's part of my joy is uh, is that I get to work with these students and, and they inspire me so much with the things that they come up with, the things that they're looking at. And, and I know that they have a, just as much of an influence on my art as I have on theirs. So yeah. it's a, I love that role. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, what, and, and well, I should probably save this for like more of a segue, but do you, and I know that you do, but do you mind telling us what your Enneagram type is? I don't mind. I'm a six. And uh, that is, from my understanding of it, there's a little bit of a worry component to that. And that definitely fits me. I'm naturally cautious and you might not know it to look at me. Um, because I am, you know, big, bold and try to be out front and try to be involved. But I, I spend a lot of time fretting and thinking through and processing things and worrying a little bit and making sure we've got them lined up. Um, it, it shows itself in different ways. Um, one of the, one of the things that my art helps me to do though, is to be centered. It's a contemplative practice for me. And so when I am, worked up in a knot about something and I just need to process it. My wife, Patrice, will send me to the studio. <laughs> She'll say, look, just you're not worth being around right now. Just go paint and we can handle this and you get that worked out and then then come back when you're ready to be a person again. <laughs> and so she she can tell when I need to have that uh, that that moment. And we try to do a little bit each day so it doesn't get built up. Um, and that's been an important thing for me to maintain in my role as provost. It can be a lot of emails and, and a lot of meetings and uh, having the opportunity to just kind of unwind and, and focus on a canvas is something that um, is, is still uh, a real home for me and sort of spiritually centering. So um, yeah. I learned about the Enneagram when I was teaching at Wofford. I was working with a scholarship program called the Success Initiative. And we moved our students through the Enneagram um, as one of the ways that we let them uh, do some personal reflection and discernment. And we had a, a professor there who had encouraged us to look at that. And so that's when I learned my type. Um, and so I have sort of a cursory understanding of, of each of the different types just from helping students think about how that might influence them. There are lots of models that you can use, but the Enneagram right. is a good one 
to sort of try to understand other people. Sixes are often called the loyalists and they're really great in community. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense because they, they like their tribe, they love on their tribe and they take care of people. So that makes I, sense. I, I grew up, you know, with three older brothers. And so I was very used to, um, I, I, I've told people, I said, you can call me any name you want to call me. You can, you know, stick your wet finger in my ear and, you know, do, you can do any kind of things to me and I'm fine, but don't mess with one of my people. Like if you know, this is something that I'm supposed to do. Yep. I'm very, I'm fine with you doing whatever you need to do to me. But if you, and I do have that kind of, um, you know, it, just please don't mess with one of my cubs. Please don't mess with some, a person I'm trying to nurture or help them grow. Cause that, that gets under my skin. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, what, would you have pegged me as a six? Would you have thought just meeting me? That you guy's know, it's hard to I, know. I have, I have loved the Enneagram. And if I've learned anything, it's that it's never my job to determine what somebody's type is because it's about so much more than behavior. Yeah. Um, it's so about your motivations. Yeah. You are, but I would say knowing now that that you you have identified as a six, I, I can see that. And I think that you're probably a very healthy six um, because I think that. Again, I, what I've learned is like I've, as I've gotten to know what I've what I've learned about all the different types and figuring out like what looks healthy and what isn't so healthy for me. And, and maybe it's I don't know. I've, it's, it's probably the fact that my I did get a degree in psychology. That was what I went to school for. And okay. and I like to understand people. So like understanding that the Enneagram is, is really personal and really about your personal motivations and not so much the things you do, because we can all do the same thing, but have completely different motivations for why we're doing sure. it. Um, once I realized what someone types as, then to me, I and, and maybe this is not something I should do, but I start to look at their behaviors to go, OK, so where are they like on the scale of health? Where are they right now? So what do they need yeah. from me? Because to me, the goal is not only I mean, the first goal is to be the best person we can be and be aware of ourselves. But then how can we help somebody else be the best that they can be? And so if I see somebody and I realize that they're this type, but I can tell that they're kind of on the unhealthy end, it's not my job to fix them. I know that. But what can I provide for them that's going to help them where they are? So, Danielle, I was that, that's, a, that's a great way um, to try to identify what's going on with with other people. And I have a funny story about that. Um, in 2009, I was finishing up my MFA program through Goddard. I was trying to do my uh, final um, uh, installation and I was creating these giant banners and I just, my garage had run out of room. I needed a studio space. It was right in the throes of that huge economic downturn. And I started looking at all of the empty spaces that were available and started to try to find a way. Is there is there a place that I could rent to to start doing this? And I approached the the leasing agent at Hillcrest when they put their second nail salon in. I thought, hmm, this, this shopping center is looking for tenants and then a lot of empty storefronts. And I moved in um, to the wet paint syndrome space. They helped me to find a good space. I was very, very nervous. I didn't know if I should 
start a business. I worried. I was working full time at Wofford. I worried, you know, what are people going to say about me uh, doing this? But they were requiring me to have an LLC in order to rent the space for insurance purposes. Um, even though I was really just looking for a couple of months, then they wanted like a three-year lease. And I was like, ah, you know, this is a lot for a second. Um, and I had plenty of other things to do, but I really felt drawn to this space. And I had some people who were very, very cautious. They would say, look, you, this, this, is, this is too much. You know, this is the wrong time to do it. Are people really buying art right now? Are you going to commit to that length of time of having that space? I was I was nervous about taking the step to do the LLC, but I also had some encouragers who um, helped me put together the legal paperwork. A, a friend from high school said, "Look, I'll do that pro bono. You don't need to worry about that." Uh, my cousin uh, Cam, who runs Neely's Windows and Doors off of Union Street, said to me, um, "Chris, you know, there've been a lot of people who've owned businesses who are a lot stupider than you, and they did just fine." So. You're going to be great. Just stop worrying about it. Take the, take the leap and you're committing to three years. And in the long run, that's not, that's not too much, you know, um, try to be really careful not to go into debt, try to be really careful to, um, just to, every step along the way, super careful, but I called it wet paint syndrome in sociology. Wet paint syndrome is a colloquial phrase that's used, uh, to describe that impulse to touch a wall when it has a wet paint sign on it, just to see, is it wet? And so I felt like this first non-garage art studio was for me that, I know the warnings are all there, there's all kinds of reasons not to do this, but I just have to reach out and touch it. So I called it wet paint syndrome and, and started from there. And uh, the component of my art that I brought to that was this guardian angel, um, practice. And it's what I was known for then. And even more now, uh, people know me for that. But I was trying to complete that big project. I finished it. I'd signed a three-year lease. And I thought, you know, I bet there are people out there in Spartanburg who uh, who also need some studio space, need a place to show, maybe aren't ready for a commercial gallery. And so I started doing what I called a pop-up uh, art night. And on the first Thursday of every month, I would just open up this, my, that big space and I would push all my stuff to the back and any local artist who wanted to show uh, two pieces of work, you paid $5 and you just brought it in and hung it on the wall and then you handled your own sales. So, you know, it was really a community gesture, right? And I got more people through that space by opening it up and sharing it. That didn't cover the rent. It didn't, but I sold a lot of artwork on those nights because my stuff was all on the back. But it, there were so many relationships, community dynamics that developed in just those, uh, you know, year and a half of running those pop-up nights. Um, it's hard to think that you could do something 18 times and it would have a huge impact, but that was transformative for my role in the community. Um, and just the connection that I feel to some of these different uh, arts opportunities and relationships that develop there. And, and it's fun to see, you know, other people who have gone on to do cool things that first showed um, even, ha even had like a, a middle school kid who came and showed some of her first work. And now she's a, uh, you know, has a degree from Converse in studio art and is 
has her own business here locally. So, I mean, it's just that kind of stuff that's super cool to, to sort of see how these things evolve from, from little seeds, right? And so if, if you are an artist and you have a big idea and you're a little bit nervous, then, you know, there are a lot of stupid people that have done successfully, <laughs> successful things before. Don't go into huge debt, but, you know, dot your I's, cross your T's and give it a go. Um, you're, the worst thing that can happen is that you decide three years later that you're not going to be able to do it. But I would encourage um, makers in our community to really give it a try. Spartanburg has been a community that has been fantastic for me. People will support and encourage and try to try to help me make things go. Um, you know, there were volunteers that would come and lead those. They would do all the check-ins at the pop-up gallery nights or people that would just say, hey, can I just help people hang their artwork? I'm not an artist, but I could do that. Um, and so there's a lot of fun that can come from opening up just a little bit. When I go to a gallery show, I always look for two types of people. I love looking for a person that's looking to buy and they've got a giant wad of cash and they're excited to buy a bunch of angels, right? That's the best part, yeah. right? That's what I'm really there for. But I also love to see at a community art show, the person kind of scoping it out. And there always are a few, anytime there's anything, there are members of our community who are scoping out the opportunity. Hey, I wonder what if I did this? Tell me a little bit how you structure this or what's your rent like or how do you make this work? And I know what they're doing. They're interested, but they're also interested because they're asking for themselves. They're they're thinking about this. And I love to encourage and foster that sort of nurture that um, in other people. And it's been fun to be at Vintage Warehouse, which is a community that has some turnover uh, of artists who are in different phases of their process. And uh, it's always exciting to meet a new vendor try to encourage them, um, give them, uh, I, I learn as much from them as they learn from me, I think, but, you know, give them a little boost on Facebook, uh, share a picture with my audience that helps them. And, and that stuff, you know, that's what it's all about. The community piece of it is what makes it fun. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, she's an ethnologist. So this is a person who is a biologist. So she studies why people behave the way that they do as a species. She's approaching this from sort of a, a Darwinian um, survival of the fittest mode, right? So if we are animals and we're driven by this imperative to, to continue, then why the heck do we make art? Like, what is it good for? And her books are called things like what is art good for? <laughs> like, what, why, why do people make this? Her name is Ellen Disanyake, and I've read some of her work. It's very dense. It's written from a scientific perspective, but she explores different ideas about why people make things. And what, what it boils down to in some of her writing, and I'm not doing it full justice in this, in this moment, but what, what it boils down to in some ways of thinking about this is that we make art to make meaning for ourselves and for others. And she would argue that if you were to take a group of people and put them on a remote island, and before they went on the remote island, every single one of them said, I can't even draw a stick figure. I am not an artist. I'm completely not an artist. If they were to build a society on that island, an artist would have to emerge in order for them to survive because people need art. 
because people need to have meaning. That's a part of what our brain is wired to do. And it's, a, it's an imperative for our species. And so in the way that certain birds build certain nests and in the way that they're, um, you know, certain modes of being that, that for the species of human, we have, we have to make art. It's an imperative. And so that's always fun for me to try to ha have a workshop or have a class where, where we form a community of people who maybe don't feel like they're artists and to see what might come out from that, right? It may not look the same. It may not be what, you know, what, what a fine artist or a trained artist would do, but that self-taught intuitive art is so much fun. And I see that so much at Vintage Warehouse. The people who have just started to rise in their community as the artist, and they're, they're being told, your art is important. Your art is a part of this. You should consider this. I experienced that myself, right? With, with my guardian angels. My mom saw this thing, wanted me to do this thing. It becomes more than that. Other people say, this is art. We want you to do this. We want you to do a gallery show. It just evolves from there, right? And so um, that sense of, of art that has meaning for us and makes meaning for others is really, really powerful. And when I think about art and community, I think about that, um, that if you were to take all artists out, all current artists out and leave only the people who would be left who would claim they are not artists, that someone would emerge to be an artist. And so if you're feeling that pain inside you that says, I'm a maker, I need to make this thing, I'm interested in giving it a try. The reason you're feeling that is because your community needs you. That yes. that you're you're what's missing. So step up, man. This is your uh, evolutionary imperative. Our species will not survive unless you step into that challenge. And uh, and that's fun to do with college students, but it's also fun just at a, a gallery show to encourage. Hey, show me on your phone your yeah. picture. Let's see what what's coming out, and why are you afraid to show it? What can we do to sort of bring this to light? Um, yes. So. I love I love that that way to think about art. It's not it's not the only way I think about it, but it is one way to sort of frame. Okay, what? Why the little angels? Why why are we painting angels and angels and angels? Well, it's at some point it stopped being about sort of a therapeutic thing for me or something I was doing for my mom, or even something that was I'm doing for other people. But it started to have a life of its own in terms of making meaning for community. Um, yeah. I'm gonna ship several uh, artworks to a, a Methodist congregation in Washington, D.C. And I've got a person there who likes to give them out as gifts, and it's a tradition there. I've only met this guy. This is the only person there that I know. But he has started to spread my art within that community, and people expect that it will be a part of it. And that's a ton of fun, right, to, for there to be meaning made for a community that is not even my own. Um, yeah. But they can start to have a toehold and start to fit together, and um, and being being in community is often something that artists want want to have. Um, that's why we have co-ops and why we have collective studios and why we have places like Vintage Warehouse because people want that art to fit together. In community. It's it's why we're having this podcast, right? It's I mean I, it, that's what it's about. We want to connect with that, but. Oh, I love that. And what an honor to to be such a part of that community and like to be able to reach people that way. So we definitely I, mean, I definitely want to get back to talking more about community. But at the same time, you, you and I know the story. But just real quick, would you sure. tell our listeners 
the story of, of the guardians, because that, that has sort of, that's become the cornerstone of your business really. And a big part of your story. So if you would just kind it of has. Has. give them that. So Danielle, I um, had an older brother who passed away. His name was Eric. Eric was 27 years old. He was a newspaper reporter for the Charleston Post and Courier. And um, Eric was the guy, uh, big, jovial, um, always in the story. Uh, but he had a lifelong struggle with epilepsy. And um, one one morning early, he got up and he um, he did a few things and then went back to bed. And he had a big, massive seizure. Um, his his wife was out walking the dog, and uh, when she came back, Eric was gone. And so this was just a devastating blow um, to my parents, to me. I kind of felt numb. Like, you couldn't quite believe this was real, that your big brother had passed away. But for, um, you know, for my parents, I think it was just devastatingly hard. And um, they tried to look for ways to, to turn it into service, to connect with others. I was kind of irritated by that. Like, why are we, why are we having to use our grief? My dad is a pastor. And so, you know, his impulse was to try to channel this into something and help others. And, and I had some pastoral inclinations, I guess, but I also was a little selfish with it. Like, please don't make me have to talk in front of somebody at my brother's funeral. This is stupid. Like, why, why do, why do I have to, why do I have to be the, the brave one, the bold one in this? But um, as I tried to process I just I struggled to ever really connect with that grief in, in a way. And, and several years later, my mom asked me to paint something that would go in Eric's childhood bedroom. She wanted something to go between the doorframe and the light switch that would just remind her to be hopeful. And so I painted a little um, guardian angel and it was just on a little piece of found wood um, and it fit in that little space. It was very, very simple, just a, a halo and um, wings and a heart and a little uh, you know, oval-shaped head and this sort of upside-down teardrop body, right? And the idea was, this is a really simple graphic design. You're going to be able to see it when you turn the lights off with just ambient light. So when mom walked in that room, there'd be that little touch of hope that, you know, even in the even in the worst place, there's some reason to still um, find joy, be hopeful. Um, so she said, I love it. This is perfect. Well, when your mother loves something, if you got a great mom like I have, when your mother loves something, you're an artist, you're not really sure like, okay, is this really good? Or is this just like, my mom loves me. And so she's fine with me doing this. But she hung it right up. And then she said, you know, Chris, I want 10 more of these. I'm going to give them to my friends. This is going to be perfect for them when they have a similar experience or when, you know, th this will be something that people will want. And uh, she she had a good eye and and said, this is a thing. I need 10 more of them. She started giving them to people. I really thought 11 was the cap of what I would do. But as she started giving them to people in the community, again, I'm not selling these. I'm just handing them to my mom and using paint left over on my palette on old pieces of wood. I mean, this is not, I'm not thinking I'm starting a business here. I think I'm just respecting my mother's wishes, right? Of course, I'm going to do this for my grieving mother. Um, mom started giving this to folks, and then they started calling for it. And I had a person who said, we need 50 of these. We had a person in our company 
who passed away. I need 50 of them for our Christmas dinner next week. Can you send them to me? I was like, what? I don't have 50 of these. So I called my mom. And I said, what is this? And and then I called the guy back. I said, I think I can do it. But, you know, can I can I charge you for it? He said, oh, yeah, just send me the invoice, whatever they cost. And I, I called my mom. I was like, what did they cost, mom? Because I've never sold one before. And so then, you know, we came up with the price and we tried to have a little tag on it. And once those 50 launched, then it it exceeded just mom's friend group, you know, my aunts and my cousins and, you know, people that she knew from church. It started to be out in the community and people were calling and asking me for them. And it, it got to be uh, enough that I was like, OK, this is a thing. I don't know why it's a thing, but it's a thing. I was still painting a lot of abstract paintings or I had this art show called distorted human forms, all angsty, like, you know, and I still paint stuff like that. But, um, but the guardian angels kind of took over and I was in graduate school and I didn't, I didn't share them with anybody. Cause I was like, I, these things will not hold up to a college critique, right? This is going to be brutal. If somebody tries to, if I, you know, they're going to pick this apart and I'm going to try to tell the story and, I'm not going to be confident with it. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm just not going to even show anybody this. So I've gone through, I did, I did community-based art projects for part of my thesis with that MFA program. I did this whole project called the Artists in Transit Project, where I hid art all around Spartanburg and people would go find it. It was kind of like an art abandonment project. They were in little Ziploc bags and they were on hiking trails and buses and the idea was getting people moving through the city. And I had like a little blog where I would post clues about where they're hidden. It was like a scavenger hunt. And there were like a hundred of those works that went out. And then we had a big show where people brought them back. And anyway, so there was that whole community-based art thing going on. Not a word about guardian angels. That, not, not going there, right? Not going to put this under graduate school scrutiny. Well, I'd finished my practicum. I'd done all of the pieces that I had to do. My advisor, an, an artist from Canada, um, fantastic uh, installation artist, Pamela Hall, um, said, okay, what I like to do in the last semester with my advisees is to say, what's the thing that embarrasses you most about your art? You've gotten to this point. You've done everything it could require you to really do. Let's pick something that you think is a weak point and see what we can do to fix it. Well, I really thought she was singling me out because she'd like gotten wind of the angels, right? And that somehow that had made it to Vermont, that I was making these things and that I was going to, you know, this is like a true confession time. Okay, yes, I do this. No, I started showing her pictures and she's like, what is this? This is, this is crazy. Why are you embarrassed about this? What's going on? And I tried to sort of unpack my baggage about these being little kitschy things from my mom or this being something that, you know, I, I just, it feels like I'm trying too hard or I don't know if this is real. I don't know where this is even coming from. And so then we just devoted an entire semester to exploring the guardian angel motif, finding places where that echoed in art um, throughout, you know, throughout time on earth, you know, like, they're winged guardian figures in almost every culture in the entire world. If you start looking hard enough, you start to see things that have not the same design, but there's some similarities, right? Or, or they're, they're folk art ways that seem to connect. 
to this. And I found connections there. And then we spent time thinking about my contemplative practice and what if you light a candle when you're doing it? Does that feel different? Or is there some difference between being in your garage or being in your studio or being outside in a pavilion? Or, you know, so I did these intentional experiments to kind of find out what it was for me about making these things. At the end of the semester, she says, Chris, this is, this is unreal. Like, I, don't, I can't believe you can make this many of them. I don't know where this is coming out, out of. It's just like oozing out of your pores. So don't try to stop it. Because if they put you in prison, you would chisel a guardian angel on the wall of your cell with like a shiv that you made. <laughs> She's basically saying like, there's no way we can stop you from making this. So stop trying to stop yourself. Just embrace it. It's the thing. This is the story. This is what it is. Stop being embarrassed. Tell your story. Make whatever art you want to make. Paint it on anything you want to make. She even suggested she's like make a brand, like a like a physical brand, and like just go around and like guardian angel and stuff. And then I, the, the six of me is like, that, that's hot. And like, what are you doing then? Could I get arrested for doing that? Or, I like burn so, down. <laughs> right? So then I did this thing where I started hiding them, and sort of in plain view where people would find them, and. People went crazy over that, right? So then, then I was like, well, maybe I should do a gallery show. Like, what if, what if I actually like said, okay, this is really art. I'm going to do a gallery show. So I had a, a show at the Chapman Cultural Center in their artist guild gallery, and it was Guardian. Like, I'm going to stop trying to do good art, and I'm just going to do my art, right? And right. It, and it has just been crazy, Danielle. As soon as I embraced that and started really making what I felt call to make and stop being embarrassed about what I had to give. The response was just unreal. And I say at this point, I've done more than 10,000 of these and that's true. But my, my close friends will quickly point out that there are videos of me saying I've done more than 10,000 of these, um, you know, for eight years. So <laughs> it's probably a few more than that. Now. But uh, if you've painted a legion of anything, you know, when you start to get to like, well, maybe 20,000, people start thinking like, eh, maybe that guy's the angel man. Like he's kind of weird or something. I don't know. <laughs> but I, just, I, I stick with that 10,000, um, more than 10,000. It's true. Um, I definitely have done that many, probably a whole lot more than that. Um, I sell them at Vintage Warehouse. I sell them online. Um, I, you know, I, I give a lot away um, just as I make them, you know, they come out a little different each time. And there's some of them that I'm like, yeah, you know, let's leave this one out on the sidewalk and let it mean something to somebody. And then there are others that I'll do as commissions. And then they're just a bunch that I, that I just kind of do as I'm meditating or contemplating. Yeah, that's the story of the guardian angels. Obey your mama. <laughs> she asked you to do right. something. Listen Say yeah. to your mama. Listen to your mama. Always. Always. Right? Yeah. And that's the and guardian angel story. Yeah. And I, and you know, I've heard that story and, and I love the story, but as we were just sitting here talking though, what I'm hearing and what I'm not realizing is what was the time frame here? Like how old were you when you painted that very first one to them well, when you finished your MFA and was like, okay, yeah, this is what I do and I need to embrace it. What was that time period? So when we've looked back, we think the first one I painted, Eric died in 2000, right? And so then the, and I was a senior in college and I made some art around the time that had some similarities, but it, 
you you could look at it and be like, this is sort of the origin of that, but it's not quite that. And then um, then really 2005 is when I did the one for my mom and um, did those first ones and then um, started to, uh, by the by the winter of 2005 is when it really started to be like, whoosh. And I finished my MFA in 2009. So I was doing all of my paintings for that program, not, not sharing the full scale of what this was. Um, you know, again, there were echoes of it in what I was doing, but there were, most of my projects weren't centered around it at all. And, uh, and then embraced it uh, in that, in that last semester. Uh, and then from there, uh, wet paint syndrome opened the next year and then uh, got connected with vintage warehouse because I, I had a full-time job, right? So I'm teaching, right. I, I can't run a retail shop. So I've got all this art inventory. I'm doing these pop-up nights, but I can't be there. So when vintage warehouse opened, it was a great solution for me because I could bring my art, have it in a space that people could stop in and purchase. And then I got money from it um, yeah. instead of it sitting in this room until I could open it and people could come by it. And um, that was the perfect dynamic for me. My studio became my studio again. And then the retail part moved more into vintage warehouse. I still will sell some out of my studio, but man, it is so great to have a fully staffed place that can ship and help me with the website and, and meet a customer when I can't get across town and promote my stuff for me and be a community of makers and schedule an event. And I can show up on the day and be me and talk a lot, but not have to like put out the punch and bake the cookies. And, you know, th those kind of things um, have been so worth it to me. It's been such a support structure for my art um, in, in its different iterations as it's grown as a business, it's become more of a community. Um, it's been just such a good partner all along the way to try to launch something, um, to try to get something started. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's how I connected with Vintage Warehouse. Someone said, uh, are you open for retail? I said, no. And they said, well, you want to put your stuff down there. And I showed up as one of those sort of nervous people looking at an art show, like, do y'all take vendors? What's, do you have an application? Yeah. I may know someone who's interested. <laughs> that kind of yeah. question. You probably see <laughs> yeah. that all the time, Danielle, people who are inquiring, but they don't quite own it. Like, Yes, but that was me, Chris. I right? mean, you know, I joined as a vendor a month after the store actually opened. So like for me, you know, it's, it's been this, this progression, this whole story of how I came about eventually, you know, being the owner. But I was the same way. I walked in and I just kind of, walked through the store to check it out and see what it was about and eavesdrop just a little bit on, on who was talking to who to know, okay, who, who do I talk to? How do I ask this question? Because prior to joining the warehouse, I had only ever sold jewelry on Etsy or like to my friends and my family. Like that was, that was the extent of my, my selling prior to that. Um, in fact, there's a funny story. I didn't, I did not make candles to sell them until I became a vendor at Vintage Warehouse, but I wanted to be a part so bad that when they told me that they were looking for a candle maker, I was like, I know how to make candles. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so that got me in the door. Okay. Yeah. No, and, and that's the thing is, 
again, I think it goes back to that listening to your community, listening to people, what people are saying. It doesn't mean sometimes there's a, a bad rap that artists who do that can get that they um, that they're selling out. Right. But you're not selling out if what you're doing is listening to your community and you're responding to that biological imperative to make. Right. If you're being called to be an artist and you're not exactly sure where you fit, explore that and and listen to what people are saying. And and mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you have to be limited by that. I've painted so many things, sometimes with angels and a lot of times without. Um, but but there are there are great opportunities out there in a community that needs more makers. And uh and so you know, I think I think that's the key is that you're not selling out. You're trying to find the community that needs you. And when you yeah. find that, it's so rewarding because it just becomes it starts to feel natural. Right. Um, there probably are fine artists who are trying really, really, really hard to get where they think they're supposed to be. If they would just take a step back and look at what opportunity is right there in front of them. Um, I try, I try to say yes when there's an arts opportunity. I can't say yes to everything, but I say yes to a lot. Um, you have to, I still am a six. I'm still careful. Like I want to, I want to read the fine print. If the contract changes, I want to know what, what's different. Um, I've worked with some galleries that have been really rough on artists. Like the commission is high and, uh, you know, they're closed more than I would have been closed. And the, they're going to close down and then how do you get your art back from them or um, they're out of town and it's hard to restock or they change their mind about what they want or there are all kinds of different experiences that I've had with folks who have tried it um, as as businesses or retail shops and sometimes they work great sometimes they work great and just didn't last forever because people change and lives change and finances change um, or leases run out, but um, sometimes there there really are times that you can say, "Hey, this is a really good fit for what I'm trying to do." Th this feels like my community. Um, so I I've been fortunate to find that in Vintage Warehouse. It's been just a great symbiotic relationship for me. That, that what they're offering and the support that they give, just the vibrant community of makers people who are making candles or selling plants or working in fashion, we're not going to overlap in a lot of that, but I'm going to learn cool things and see new colors and new patterns and new designs and be inspired because I'm a part of that community of makers. And, uh, and that's a lot of fun. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I love that. And that, I mean, it's, yeah, you're so right because exposing yourself to stuff that's different from what you do is really as how you grow at the end of the day, you know, to have a new way of looking at things. So with, with being, you know, in community, if, if you were talking to someone who maybe doesn't really understand the community aspect and maybe they're looking for it, or maybe they don't even know they're looking for it, but they need to plug in. Like what, what are you suggesting to them? So I, I would say uh, to just try your hand at it, watch a demo and give it a shot. Uh, get some art supplies. I know, I know there's some uh, opportunities that are available to just, you know, purchase some paint and put it on something. Um, 
I, I like to think of it as cooking, right? We, in cooking, we have recipes. But the reason we have recipes is because somebody figured out the hard way how long is too long to cook it and how, <laughs> how much is not enough to cook it right, for it to right. be right. And right. if you put this much sugar, it's like horrible. But if you put this much, it's delicious. And if you put too much, then it's like, ugh, it's too, yeah. you know, too sweet. Um, and and we tend to sort of get the recipe book and try to follow it exactly. And there's no obligation to do that. That's not how we got those recipes. Your grandma's best recipe probably came from a time in the Great Depression when they had to substitute an ingredient and it turned out really great. And so they kept it. And so that that sort of experimentation, embracing the accident, try, giving it a go, the worst thing you're going to do is mess up a canvas, right? And then you could paint right over it if you need to. But um, there's a poet, uh, William Stafford, who wrote a poem every morning. And he would then put it down for six months, face down in a drawer and not touch it. Like he would write it when he first woke up. This is the morning poem. Put it in a drawer face down. Don't touch it for six months. Then go back with critical lens and look at it and decide what parts of this are good, what parts of it are worth keeping and work through that stack of, of all of that writing. But you have to show up, right? You have to start the process. And he, he is quoted often as saying, there's no such thing as writer's block as long as you start set your standards low enough, right? If you, if you, if you are trying to write a novel that is going to be made into a movie and it's going to be a New York Times bestseller, you will not do it on your first attempt. But if you're trying to, if you do the work daily, get in there, give it a go, try it and have fun with it, and then look back at it critically over time, you might just have something there. And so yeah. um, that's what I would encourage folks who are who are wanting to try their hand at making is find an old piece of furniture and paint something on it or find an old board at the hardware store and paint something on it. And, you know, uh, fiddle with stuff, tinker with stuff, see what will work. Um, South Carolina has a great tradition of, of outsider artists and folk artists who have used weird and unusual materials to, to make cool and eccentric things. And, and sometimes I think, you know, when I'm, when I'm being hard on myself and I'm being critical about my, my guardian angels, I think, you know, the reason this is a thing is because I've made so many of them that it's a thing, right? That if I just keep doing it, then it is even more of a thing. But mm -hmm. there is some component there that resonates with other people. And it, and I have to step back and let that be for them what it is, right? I can't just, mm -hmm. If it were up to me, I'm not sure I would keep just keep doing them. But because there are other people that are encouraging me, that are responding to them, that are giving me feedback, that are helping me to 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 be sustained, then it 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 has sort of a life of its own. Uh, yeah. And then also take breaks, like play. You don't have to. Everything doesn't have to be a finished project for somebody else. It can just be. I gave this, I, I, I am experimenting here. So, so that would be my I tell people to make something ugly. 
Yes. Set out to create something ugly, but in the process, you will find something that you love. Right. Um, I think and, that's true. Yeah. But so what about the artist that comes to you that is starting to find their their style? They're starting to find their voice, but they they need to plug into community. Right. They need to plug in somewhere, whether it is a store, whether it is an online group, whether it is an in-person class or setting, you know, at a, at a local school. Like what I mean, what would be your advice to that person that, that doesn't even know where to start looking, but they know they need something? I think finding account accountability can be good. Um, meaning that once you put yourself out there, there's somebody who's going to ask you how's it going? And you'll have to be you know, honest with them to yeah. say, um, I've had relatives or friends that have helped me when I was trying something new to look at it, give me their feedback, you know, go with it, see how it goes and then circle back with them and say, I don't think this did what I wanted it to do. Or I really think this might be a thing. Can you give me your feedback now? You know, and, and having that kind of accountability is helpful. Um, another piece is to, you know, to if you find that you're accumulating things, but they're not becoming finished work or you're sort of at a stuck place, just do something to it. Just just try a thing and don't let it don't let it don't get frozen in the this is a perfect canvas because that's not why they made it. They didn't make it to just be a blank white canvas, put the first mark on it and then you can paint over it if you need to. But don't don't um, sit there and stare at the blank page, put something on it because that's what it's there for. You you are you are the owner of it. And it's there for you to do something to it. You're not going to ruin it. You're going to make it better by adding your mark. So, Perfect. Um, okay. So before we end, I like to do a couple just like really fast rapid fire kind of questions. Um, so what are you reading right now? Well, I'm, I'm loving audiobooks right now. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time reading emails as the interim provost and reading sort of literature to try to learn that role. And so I, in my sort of enjoyment, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of audiobooks. And uh, right now I'm listening to um, one of the, do, do you know the, the series, the uh, Miss Peregrine School for Peculiar Children? Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the author. But there's a new book that that's come out. It's called like the Desolation of Devil's Acre, I think, and and I just reading that for fun. Um, and I, and I, I I turn them up, Danielle, to like the the two times the speed, and I find that I get so much more engaged with them when I they make that makes me have to listen more closely because it's going so fast. And then when I can't get my brain to focus on, it, then I know I just I don't have anything here to. I just need to turn it off for a while and do something different. But um, I am really enjoying the audiobook game right now. The public library has great choices and they're more than I could ever listen to. And my list gets longer and longer of the ones I'm trying to reserve. But um, I've encountered so many works again that I had read before. And then now I'm listening to and hearing it in a different way and sharing some of those with my son, you know, when we're in the car, it's been, it's been good fun. Um, I actually started it as like a Lenten practice. 
um, okay. where I decided I was going to listen to the Bible on audiobook several years ago. And then after I finished that, I, you know, was like, well, you know, I had a little bit of time left in Lent. So I'll listen to something else. And then it just, I just got hooked on it and, and, and been doing the audiobook thing. So. I love that. That has never occurred to me to listen to the Bible as an audiobook. Like, I mean, reading it, sure, but like it would have never occurred to me to listen to it. I, I, I love that. I'm going to have to think about that. Now that would. It's funny the things that pop out to you a little differently when you yeah. do that, the catch stuff, and then you'll go back and read it and think about it a little differently. Um, yeah. I, 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 so there's a, um, this is the art teacher in me, and I apologize, but there's a French uh, philosophical sort of existential uh, philosophical practice that's called the derive. And, um, and I think this is something that you probably do in your practice, but you maybe don't think that you're, you don't, you don't call it this, right? But but the derive was uh, was designed that you would um, walk through your city or your your home or or the way your your usual way of moving through the world. Let's say that you would um, intentionally take a different route and be more focused on what you notice when you travel from point A to point B, but by a different path. And it was sort of this existential way to, to really make sure you were experiencing, right? That you're not numb to your normal routine. So if I'm driving to Vintage Warehouse, maybe I take a, a different path on purpose. It's not the most efficient path, but it's a path that shows me something I wouldn't ordinarily have seen. There's a local writer named John Lane who wrote a book um, where he he took a map and he put a plate. John John is one of the founding members of like the Hub City uh, Writers and was an English professor at Wofford. I loved him as a, as a professor. But he took a plate and he put it down on a map of Spartanburg with his home at the center. And he drew a circle around it and he said, I'm going to learn this area. Like, I'm going to learn my, my place. And um, I love that idea, right? And so then I started thinking about this. There's a, there's a whole group of artists and writers at work. Um, sometimes they talk about psychogeography. Um, which is maybe a little different than, you know, um, than being surrounded by psychos. This is like the the psychology of your landscape. Like, what are you're getting into the in, in into these different parts that make you that are all around you? Um, if you take this alley, it's a little different than this other. Then you explore the psychology of that place. I guess so. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a fun way to be in community too. To to yeah. to think about the derive. Um, yeah. So Definitely. I don't know. What was the original question that you asked? What are you reading right now? <laughs> right. No, yeah. So, but, but, by, but by shifting, by shifting and, and instead of reading the Bible, listening to the Bible mm -hmm. gives you that sort of enough. It's the same thing, but it's just that little shift that makes you notice things a little differently. So, yeah, I love that. I there'd be some way for me to get the existential French philosophy from. Hey, it's all good. Listen, I love it. Uh, are you watching anything right now? Like TV or, or anything? Uh, so my wife and I are, we've had a couple of different pandemic guilty pleasures, like when we've been in isolation. And um, one of the shows we watched early on was the, um, I'm trying to think of what we call it at our house. 
it's it's Shit's Creek, but they they're, they're yes. my children my children call it something else, uh, so that they're not saying what sounds like a, a bad word, even though it's spelled different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but so we we listened to that Creek show, right? And uh, and it's just it's been absolutely hilarious, and we've enjoyed. Yes. We we were very late to the game, so we were we were just picking up on it after it had pretty much already ended. Um, yeah. We got a kick out of that. We um, then we got into Cobra Kai. Um, okay. And uh, have you seen that? I haven't seen the the series, but okay. were you a big Karate Kid fan? Was that what drew you in? Or you know, I had three older brothers, and my parents described taking us to see those movies and coming home to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now this is a great way to start wars among your children. But so. Um, it's been really funny. It's kind of retro and they're like now uh, in the, you know, now they're in the present and you've got these like flashbacks. And so then we went back and watched all the old karate kid movies with our kids. And that's been kind of a fun family thing. Yeah. That does sound fun. Yeah. So, you know, we're kind of doing the Netflix deal and then we'll put posts on Facebook. Uh, Hey, what what's the next series that we watch? Um, yeah. And somebody will recommend a thing, and we sometimes we're like, eh, nah, not really. And then there are other times that we'll just we'll really catch. Usually, it's something that is just going out of style, and everybody's already seen, and we'll finally, like six years later, get into it, and we're like, oh, yeah. I guess that's pretty funny. So we were kind of that way with the Office. Like after the show ended, then we were like, oh. This isn't so bad. We watched the first episodes live and we're like, this is stupid. And then later we kind of get it. So I guess we're kind of behind the times on that. But okay. yeah, I don't, I, I am such a visual person that I'm really selective about what, um, what images I'm putting in my head. Cause they, they are there like forever. Yeah. And I don't want, I'm not a horror gory. I hate hospital shows. I just don't want to see that stuff. I have enough visual images in my head that I, and I can make images in my head. I don't need, I don't need to be filled with someone else's weird images, but, yeah. uh, but you know, I, I love a good comedy and a good, you know, a, a hilarious show just to kind of have a good laugh. So. Yeah. Well, good. Sorry That's if good. I used a, a bad word on. Oh, I watch it okay. too. I like that show. Um, I okay. love that show. I <laughs> so, haven't finished the last just yet i've got a couple episodes left but um i was late to the game too and and i watch it my my husband he didn't really get into it so i like to have a couple of shows every now and then that i can watch without him so that when yeah. he's not home I, I have something to watch because you know most of the time you're watching tv together and it's like they're telling you don't watch it without me don't watch it without me so right. it's nice to have a few shows that i'm, I'm watching without him <laughs> Yeah. And that's yeah. one for me. So I've got a couple of episodes left that I haven't had a chance to watch yet. But but yeah, I enjoy that show. Okay. And then the <laughs> last question is, where would you go tomorrow if time, money, and resources were of zero consequence? Danielle, see, these are supposed to be lightning round questions, but I turn out <laughs> and make them these long comments. So let, me, let me just say, this is a part of me that we haven't talked about that is also probably uh, important in this conversation. So when I was in college, I was the international presidential scholar for Wofford College, and I was awarded the opportunity to travel around the globe with somebody else's credit card and to explore the world. 
and I have been on hammock boats on the Amazon River. I've been in the Dominican Republic. I've I've lived for a month in South Africa. I've been through Egypt, Israel, Jordan. I've you know I, I studied water and spirituality and how how communities use water in their popular uh, culture, like what's the cultural context for water, and then how the water um, also informs their popular religious practice, right? And so I, I've traveled along the Ganges in India. I've, I've done, a, I've been to Nepal. I've done a lot of, lot, lot of travel. Um, but uh, a place that I've been to a couple of times that I really enjoyed was Prague. Uh, had a friend who uh, helped me to go there, and I, I went there at a time uh, during my trip. And so, if I if I was gonna really, if the time and money thing was gonna really give me a chance to go do that, Prague would probably be the place. But for me personally, if I just had a week that I could go spend and do something that I think would be the most restorative for me, I'd probably go to Pauly's Island. That has been a family place. It's where I get, I pick up a lot of driftwood for my guardian angels come from that. Um, I, I just walk along the beach after a big rain and pick up the driftwood. And so, you know, I love, I, I love lots of different places. I've been to lots of different places, but sort of a centering place for me would be there. But, but it'd be hard because I can do that. So I hate to spend like my, <laughs> one, my one free thing not to go back yeah. to Europe. You know, but yeah. so, yeah, so I, I, a place that I haven't been that I think I would like to go, um, I, I'd, I'd like to go to Italy. Um, I'd, I'd be really interested in, in spending some time there. You know, I've been to England, I've been to Spain, but I really haven't spent time in France. And I feel I, the, the weird thing about that trip is that I'm very well traveled, but I'll, it was in sort of these locations that aren't your standard locations. And so you know, it right, right. And so yeah. as a person who, um, who teaches uh, art appreciation, I'd love to go see some of those, um, you know, classic European museums. I, I had an opportunity to go to Amsterdam when I was evaluating a study abroad program, like such a hardship for me that I had to go evaluate study abroad program, the Van Gogh <laughs> Museum and, uh, you know, that there, there's so many fantastic places I would love to go again, but there's some also things that, you know, I feel like I'd like to go see that I haven't had a chance to see. Um, so I don't know if that really answered again. That's, like, that's um, there's, no, there's no right or wrong answers to those questions. <laughs> Maybe people can listen to this podcast at two times the speed and, and I'll, it'll stay interesting. I don't know. <laughs> Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me today. This has been so much fun. It's been great getting to know you a little better and hear some of these stories. And I mean, the way that community has shaped your career to this point and what you've been through is, is really fascinating, too. So thank you for taking the time to come talk to me today. It's been my pleasure, Danielle. If I can just have one parting thought, it would be in all of the places that I've traveled and in all of the communities that I've experienced. I learned, um, and, and this helps me as a six, I think, right? As that person who's a little nervous, who can be a worrier. If you are in a community and you need to wear deodorant, someone will be selling deodorant. And if you're in a community and no one wears deodorant, then you're going to be fine. You don't have to have a deodorant. Um, 
And, and, you know, that's a silly example, but communities have a way of providing the things that people need within them. Uh, for me, I prefer most of my life to be spent in a community where deodorant is a part of what we do. Yeah. But it's but but it doesn't have to necessarily be a thing for everyone. And so I, I think that it's it's easy to have anxiety when you take a year a year long trip. Like, how am I going to pack enough deodorant, or what am I going to do for this? And a, a former scholar shared that with me. This idea of like, hey, if you need deodorant, you'll be able to buy it. And if you can't buy it, you won't need it because nobody yeah. else is going to have it. So, um, you know, I think sometimes we, it's kind of the win in Rome, do as the Romans, right? Yeah. That, um, that when we think about community, we, we've we got to find our our place and we've got to find where we can connect. And sometimes we've got to stop worrying about being prepared for what we'll find in that place and just go and know that if you need it, the people there have figured out a way to do do it the way they need it. So, you know, if you're on a hammock boat on the Amazon, you can bring a hammock. And if you forget your hammock, somebody's going to be selling you one beside the boat because everybody who gets on the boat needs one so they have a place to sleep. <laughs> so, you know, there's a little bit of that. Um, I don't always take that to heart. I have enough of that uh, scouter in me where I want to be prepared and have everything yeah. ready. But um, But some of this you have to just know you're gonna you're gonna leap and you're gonna find what you're looking for. So, Daniel, awesome. thanks for all you're doing for the makers in our community and for this podcast. And oh, um, thank you. this is just such a great a, a great resource for folks, and I appreciate you building it. You, oh, we needed so, it, and you knew we needed it. I, yeah, I mean, you know, I needed it, and so if I needed it, somebody else needed it too, right? That Absolutely. that was uh, what that came down to. So, so yeah, Good thank deal. you for today. Sure, sure. Okay, guys, so that's it for another episode. You can find links to all of Chris's um, social media outlets and where you can buy his work and find out more about him in the show notes for today. Don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Maker's Chat. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. Remember to check out the Maker's Chat community so you can dive deeper into the conversation. You'll find the link to join in our show notes. Have a beautiful week and we will chat again soon.